This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 19, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. It's been years since the Department of Homeland Security was ordered to tell Americans how they would implement naked scanning devices at airports throughout the United States. The agency has effectively ignored requests for most basic information about the activity. The naked body scanners have been implemented without the most basic precautions. Ginger McCall with the Electronic Privacy Information Center says concerns remain about the cost, effectiveness, radiation, and invasiveness of these machines. But the federal government has done little to allay the public's ongoing complaints. She spoke at a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing today. In 2009, uh, the DHS announced that it was going to start a pilot program with uh, WBI technology used as a primary screening method. There had been some discussion before that of, um, of body scanner technology being used as a secondary screening method. That is, if you're going through the airport and you go through the initial screening method, which would in this case be the metal detector, Uh, and then something happens, the metal detector goes off, you would be directed to a secondary screening method. So not everyone would start off by going through the body scanner. That was how it was originally envisioned. When DHS put this technology out here, out there and started discussing it, it was envisioned as a secondary screening technology. But in 2009, they announced that they were going to start a pilot program, which would make this technology the primary screening technology in airports. And at that point, Epic sent a letter to the agency petitioning it to undertake a public notice and comment rulemaking. So the same thing that we're still asking for now about three years later. Uh, And we cited the fact that these machines are highly invasive. Uh, As Jim discussed, they essentially take a naked picture of a person and project it up on a computer for some TSA official to look at. Um, And we also thought that we'd like to get more details on these machines. So we filed several Freedom of Information Act requests with the agency. Uh, The agency, of course, punted its deadlines under the Freedom of Information Act, and so we ended up filing suit under that act to obtain the documents that we had requested. And when we finally got those documents in 2010, we saw some things that were not entirely unexpected, but still quite troubling. Um, We found in those documents, in the TSA's own procurement specifications and operational requirements documents, that these these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. We found that the privacy filters that TSA was touting around the country saying, you know, you're safe, there are privacy filters on these machines. Those privacy filters can be turned off. We found, most troublingly perhaps, that the machines were capable of storing and transferring the images that were captured. So that very graphic naked image could be stored, it could be transferred uh, easily via USB. So we took these documents out to the public, um, and this factored into our eventual calculation to sue the agency. In 2010, the agency, DHS, decided that it was going to move forward uh, with, move, with putting the body scanners in the airports as primary screening technology. So it did its pilot program, decided that it was going to continue to push out these machines into the American airports. And Epic sent a second petition to the agency, uh, along with a bunch of other groups uh, who signed on to this petition. We asked the agency to suspend the program because of the privacy concerns. Uh, we said that the program should be suspended, the agency should reconsider. Um, And at that point, a little later in 2010, we decided that we were just going to sue the agency because they never replied to our two petitions. They continued to simply roll out the body scanners into the airports. So we filed suit, uh, as Jim mentioned, under the Fourth Amendment uh, and under the APA, uh, as well as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, And the court ruled in our favor on the APA issue. Uh, On the Fourth Amendment issue, there were some, some problems, as Jim said, that they had adopted completely the agency's 
statement of facts. Uh, the agency claims that there's a, an effective opt-out. And what we saw in the documents that we received back from the agency, we got thousands of pages of traveler complaints. And those complaints indicated that, in fact, there is no effective opt-out. Uh, oftentimes, travelers are not informed by the agency that they are permitted to opt-out of the machines. And even if they do opt-out, they're subject to a retaliatory and very invasive pat-down. But unfortunately, the court adopted the agency's characterization that there was an effective opt-out. And so that negated the Fourth Amendment argument, but perhaps not permanently. But they did rule in our favor, as Jim said, uh, quite exhaustively on the Administrative Procedures Act issue. Uh, and they stated that the agency had to conduct notice and comment rulemaking, quote, promptly. And they ordered the agency to do that. So it's been a year since the court's decision in July of 2011. And uh, this week, we filed a, a petition for a writ of mandamus asking the court to force the agency to comply with the court's own order that the agency undertake public notice and comment rulemaking. We've seen no indication from the agency that they have started this process. Uh, we've seen no indication from the agency that they've even taken first steps on this process. Um, and it's been a year. It's been a full 12 months since the court's order. And it's been two and a half years since Epic's original petition. And it's been three years since the agency initially started uh, to roll out the body scanners as a primary screening method. So in our mandamus, we highlighted case law that would suggest or would show, quite simply, that the agency's delay here is unreasonable. And that's the question under the law, whether or not this is a reasonable delay. Um, courts have found that a, a delay, uh, a reasonable delay, would be measured in days or weeks or months and not years. And years are what we're looking at here. Three years since the action, two and a half years since we filed our original petition, and a year since the court ordered the agency to undertake a rulemaking. The agency's delay here effectively prevents any sort of judicial review. As Jim highlighted under the APA, uh, once an agency comes to a final rule, then members of the public can take the agency to court if they feel that that rule is arbitrary or capricious. And the court can then review the agency's action. Granted, it's a rather low bar, the arbitrary and capricious bar, but it's better than nothing. It allows for some judicial review. Here, the agency has completely evaded that possibility of judicial review because they've never actually issued a final rule that a court could review. Um, they've also evaded the intent of Congress. Congress said that if you're going to, uh, to put forth a new rule, you need to issue that notice and comment rulemaking 30 days before you start actually acting on that rule. Um, that's never happened here. In fact, we're three years out from when the agency started its action. Uh, the agency's delay effectively undermines the entire purpose of public comment, which is to allow the public to weigh in on agency action to promote a democratic process in which everyone has an opportunity to let the agency know what, whether or not they feel like this is a worthwhile action, whether it's cost effective, whether it's um, worthwhile for the risks that it presents, whether it's worthwhile for the invasiveness of the action. Um, and here, the agency has simply never asked the American public, how do you feel about this? Um, and especially in light of the fact that there are ongoing radiation concerns and risks related to these machines. We've seen experts, uh, doctors Brenner, Agard, uh, and several others come out and say repeatedly that these machines present a very real radiation risk, especially to pregnant women, to children, to the elderly, to people who are immunocompromised because they've had some sort of uh, disease or cancer, um, and the machines present that very real radiation risk, but that risk has never been properly addressed by the agency. To date, the agency has never done a real independent review of that risk. Um, they've relied almost entirely on the vendor-supplied numbers. Uh, there's never been any independent review. 
And that in particular uh, is something that the court should take into account because uh, in a writ, in, under a writ of mandamus, a health or safety risk is something that would definitely weigh in favor of the court stepping in and enforcing its own order. Uh, we've also seen that continual evidence that these machines are ineffective. Uh, what we saw in, our procurements, in the procurement specifications that we obtained from TSA is that these machines were not designed to detect powdered explosives. Uh, and further evidence has borne that out. Both the GAO and the DHS Inspector General's Office have issued reports stating that there are very strong vulnerabilities in these machines. Um, and those vulnerabilities cut against the the reasons to use these machines. If the machine is not effective at picking up powdered explosives, which are the threat that we face today, if these machines present very real radiation risks, if they're very costly, if they're very invasive, then why are we putting these machines in our airports? And that's the reason why the public should be allowed to comment on this. The public should be allowed to weigh those risks and those supposed benefits and, and let the agency know exactly how it feels. Ginger McCall is director of the Open Government Program at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. She spoke at a Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing held today. You can watch and listen to that full briefing at our website, cato.org.